Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. everyone and welcome to episode 425 of the Battery Power Podcast. I am your host Brad Roland going solo on a Saturday evening into Sunday here in mid-October. Obviously a lot has happened around the Atlanta Braves and unfortunately that means they're not playing baseball anymore for the rest of this month and I have to open the podcast by shouting out my colleagues and my friends Sean Coleman and Stephen Tolbert. Uh, Again thank you to them profusely for handling the Game 4 recap podcast on Thursday evening. As we discussed, if you missed it, uh, Scott and I, Scott Coleman and I, are the usual co-hosts on the kind of flagship show that started it all here on the network. We were both unavailable, and that was the only time before the playoffs even started, the only game on the whole schedule for the whole month that both of us were not available to do at the same time, and it happened to be, and honestly, I didn't really forecast this. In my mind, it was not going to be the last game of the season. Uh, I thought there was a chance that the Braves might win in Game 4 in advance, and we would have handled that moving forward. But anyway, did not like to miss that podcast. Really did not enjoy that. Did not not mean to have Sean and Stephen have to handle that for us, but shouts to them, and thanks for everybody who listened to that show as well, and the raw emotion that's still Kind of stands at this point in time, and again, I'm going solo on this Saturday. Scott and I will meet up in the near future and do more, and again, we're going to have a very, very full off-season on this podcast network. Not only Scott and I, but Sean on the Daily Hammer and Steven and Chris Willis talking on the podcast to be named later. We don't really go away on this podcast feed, so strap in. We'll be here all winter long, but just basically, I have lots of stray thoughts and numbers and reactions and recap stuff. From the last couple of days, I will say um, I have heard the entirety of like a 45-minute exit interview that Alex Anthopoulos did um, on Friday. I'm not going to include really much of that in this comment. This is really kind of all stuff that happened in the series and um, the end results of that. And uh, I also want, I'm cognizant of that being written up on the site at batterypower.com. And also Sean will, I'm sure, discuss a lot of those off-season, more off-season topics, basically. So this could be kind of my... At least my personal individual wrap-up thoughts on the series that was and the series that unfortunately wasn't for the Braves, but um, also a therapy session on some level. And certainly uh, listen to the previous show if you missed anything from the actual night. Stephen and Sean have you covered for that as well. With that said, I will dive in now to what transpired and all that fun stuff. So, or not, or not so fun stuff. Um, the Braves have not won an elimination game since 2018. That's a long time when you're in the playoffs each and every year. Of course, they haven't. They actually didn't face an elimination game in 2021 because they, if, if so, this stat would not hold up because they won the World Series. But uh, part of that is just, you know, when you're in an elimination game, you're either in a winner-take-all, like a Game 7 or a Game 5, or that means you're trailing in a series, which is not where you want to be. But the NLDS 
and this is not breaking ground for any, any Braves fan, but certainly keep in mind that the Braves have been eliminated now in 11 of the last 15 playoff appearances that they've actually had. 11 of those have been NLDS eliminations. That is a staggering stat in some respects. 12 of the last 15 times they've been in the playoffs. They have not reached the NLCS or better because, if, as, you all, as you all likely remember, the Braves lost that infamous wildcard game to St. Louis. So in 80% of the last 15 playoff appearances for the Braves, they have lost before the NLCS. They did, of course, win the World Series two years ago. And as a sidebar right now, everything would be much much more dire and more grim had they not won the World Series two years ago. Now, there was an old rule, I think it was a Bill Simmons thing or something like that, that you kind of have a five-year grace period after you win a championship. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily apply in all, in all contexts, and it doesn't like make, any, make it any easier. The Braves have now won 100 games in back-to-back seasons and not won the World Series or even reached the World Series or even gotten out of the first round in the last two years, but... Um, as I was prepping this podcast, it kind of just stuck in my head once again that, like, imagine if they had not won the World Series in 2021 as a team that objectively, on paper, wasn't supposed to do that. They weren't that good for a large portion of that season, and that was a memorable time. We'll all never forget it. I talked about this on that show, on the show throughout that entire month with Scott and also with Eric Cole. It was a wild ride. And that's a good thing to hold on to because it doesn't make it any easier right now. But certainly, I keep coming back to that, like how much more brutal would this all have been in the last two years, if not for 2021. But putting that to the side, um, the Braves, you know, since the year 2000, and I was in high school in 2000. It's been a long time. I'm not a young man at this point in time. The NLDS has basically been a consistent horror show for the organization. They're 3-11 in the NLDS over the last 24 seasons. And again, another time where they didn't actually didn't even get there. So 3-11 in that round in a best-of-five format, all that stuff. It's just, there's some noise there that we'll come back to later on in the podcast about you know the randomness of baseball. And I know people don't want to hear that, but it is what it is. But um, you know, two of the three best teams now in Braves history in the regular season when it comes to win-loss record and performance have lost to the Phillies, who are obviously division rivals, in maddening fashion. And those actually came exactly 30 years apart. Uh, famously, 1993, if you were old enough to remember that, was a brutal loss to the Phillies. And you could argue that the 1998 team that had the franchise record still does for victories lost to the Padres in crazy fashion, losing to Sterling Hitchcock as a name. If you're old enough to remember that, it will send a Sherwood Diners by in 98 in the NLCS. The Braves have now won 103 games or more only four times in franchise history. They made the World Series once in those four times, and they got swept in the World Series in that stretch. The Reds have, of course, won two World Series in my lifetime. Neither one of those teams were nearly as good as the last two years have been when it comes to regular season success. Um, that's kind of a preamble. We'll dive in now to my, my lingering thoughts on Game 4. If you don't want to hear this, you can fast forward if you want to. Uh, look, they, they left eight guys on base in the game in Game 4. They left 11 guys on base in Game 3. They left seven guys on base in game one. The only game the Braves won in the series was game two, uh, and they left two men on base in that game. Uh, not breaking ground, but you don't want to leave guys on base. Uh, I thought there was some, maybe some overmanagement in the seventh inning. My only quibble really is that I probably would not have used Darno for Harris at that juncture. I don't, you know, I, you can't say it didn't work, quote unquote, because he did walk. So it wasn't like a huge failure, but 
it kind of maybe bit them later on with what with what the ninth inning uh, had and kind of held for them all, as we'll talk about in a second. Of course, the single biggest moment of the game, and you could also argue now for maybe the season, was the bases loaded moment with the MVP at the plate. That's a spot that will be remembered for a long time, unfortunately, for Braves fans in the seventh inning. Ramon Acuna hits the ball 379 feet to left center. It had, a, it had a 470 expected batting average, according to our friends at StatCast. Nice defensive play by the Phillies, and he just barely missed it. And even then, that ball falls in a lot of ballparks and in a lot of situations. Uh, hard to fault Snicker, in this case, for kind of going all in on the seventh inning. And by the way, he absolutely went all in on the seventh inning. Not only going to Darno for Harris, but all the stuff around it. Um, but when you, when that sets up and you get it to Ronald Acuna in the box with her season on the line, bases loaded, you know, you take your chances. It didn't work out for the Braves in that moment. And Ronnie, again, just barely missed it. But uh, that kind of bit them later on. I will say, and there's been some debate about this. Does it actually matter now? Maybe not. This is a baseball process analysis podcast. <clears throat> uh, I will say that Kevin Pillar not scoring on a wild pitch, in my belief, was a pretty bad moment and a pretty bad mistake. Um, I think if you watch the replay, and this has been something I, I, I sort of tried to take stock of this for people that were not emotionally invested to make sure I wasn't crazy. I've heard some other podcasts about it nationally, some people writing about it. The consensus is people that, you know, everyone that I talked to really believes that he, he would have scored and scored easily had he run. I think it might have got underplayed a little bit by fans in a rare, a rare instance. I didn't have sound on for most of the game. I was doing double duty with Hawk stuff. But I did hear that Jeff Francoeur, of course, who's a, a local uh, on the national broadcast, pointed out a few different times that Pilar should have scored. I'm glad he did. I think he would have scored very clearly in that moment. He's not a, not a slow runner. I was also frustrated by some of the discussion around that because a lot of it was geared toward Acuna being at the plate. And I do understand that. Just to sort of head that argument off at the pass, I do get that you don't want to make the last out with the MVP at the plate. I get all that. I promise I do. I'm not saying it's a, it's a definite 100 to 0 percentage that he has to go there. I want to be very clear about that. But, and also another thing was, people. this is one that kind of made me, made me the craziest, is that people were arguing that, okay, well, the Phillies are just going to walk Ronnie if Pilar scores. And um, folks, I, I would take that trade-off. If you give me a, a run that is guaranteed, it's not the ninth inning. If it was the ninth inning, you don't go, obviously, because you need you need both runs. Um, your run, if you're Kevin Pilar, doesn't matter. In the seventh inning, you cut the margin in half by scoring on a wild, on a wild pitch. Um, and yeah, they might walk Ronald Acuna, but in that scenario, you get Ozzy Albies to the plate with a, with bases loaded. He's a switch hitter. Like Ozzy Albies is not Ronald Acuna, but he's a very good hitter. Um, so anyway, the big thing is again, like I don't think it was gonna be close. If it had been close, I would have totally understood it. But I think he just kind of froze, and it is what it is. That stuff happens mentally. I do get again that you don't want to make the throw out at home, but I've watched it probably ten times. I think he was gonna score pretty easily. And then of course you get people to say, well, they lost by two. And, and look. I understand that response too, but I, I do not believe that that's logic that you can totally unequivocally lean on, especially when the Braves then had first and third and no out in the ninth. And yeah, I think that maybe the approach is different if you're down by one versus down by two. Will we ever know? Absolutely not. We will absolutely never know if that run would have mattered. But I do think that it would have changed some tactics. It would have changed the win probability quite a bit had they scored there. And uh, you know, all that said, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, last thing from the game itself, I promise you. As that it was, you know, it was equal parts frustrating, maddening, sad, maybe even appropriate for the randomness and the can't predict ball aspect of baseball that the Braves had two men on and no one out 
in the ninth inning of the final game of the season, and the three guys who went to the box without anyone getting hurt. There were no injuries in the game. Nothing fluky happened. The three guys that batted with the season on the line, nobody out, two men on, were Kevin Pillar, Eddie Rosario, crucially pinch-hitting against a lefty. Yes, again, pinch-hitting against a lefty. And then Vaughn Grissom, whose last plate appearance in the major leagues before that moment happened in August. And yes, it goes back to going in, like I said before, all in, basically, in the seventh inning. But Pilar had a terrible at-bat. Rosario against the lefty is better than Forrest Wall hitting, I will grant that. But that's not what you want. You do not want to be hitting Eddie Rosario as a pinch hitter against the lefty. And then Vaughn Grissom, I, I actually believe Vaughn Grissom's bat on the whole, but an ice cold. I mean, you can't get more ice cold than Vaughn Grissom would have been, having not hit in a major league game in six weeks or more, maybe even longer than that, against a quality reliever. That's a bad matchup. It's not a demanding situation. Um, the argument could be made that uh, Grissom should have hit for Forrest Wall instead of having um, instead of hitting for Lopez at the end. I think I actually think that would be what I would have done. I would have had Grissom hit for Wall in front of Rosario. Um, you know, not having two outs there, etc. You know, all that stuff is kind of noise at this point in time. And, you know, maybe your argument is like, Nicky Lopez is not a great hitter either. And maybe you want to use Rosario quickly because, you know, you could, you, I guess Vaughn could have got out a double play and then you never use Rosario, etc. But I don't know that Rosario lefty versus lefty is a better matchup than Vaughn Grissom. So, um, you know, they, they mounted a rally in the ninth inning. Obviously, that was part of the risk of the seventh in that you went all in and you left yourself so vulnerable. But, man, it is so brutal to think about the fact that if any of those guys can avoid making it out, and I say it that intentionally, anybody walks, anybody singles, anybody does not make it out, rise up again. And, yes, maybe he gets out, but uh, they just couldn't quite get back to Ronnie. And uh, it kind of even added a, a, even, even a little bit more frustration at the end of an already frustrating night and an already frustrating series. So, zooming back out a little bit before we move on. Obviously, there are ways in which the Braves failed in the series. Many ways in which the Braves failed in the series. Um, but I think the clear headliner, no matter what the narrative talk about crazy things like the Bryce Harper, Orlando Garcia, Jake Mintz stuff, which I think is perhaps the most overblown and over-discussed story in the history of Major League Baseball... Um, but look, no matter the context, any team performing as badly as in a playoff series as the Braves did on offense would have been a big story, especially as a number one seed. Then you throw it in, and it gets only magnified and appropriately magnified, in my mind. I'm not saying this is bad. This is appropriate to magnify this when you compare it to the best offense in the league for the Braves, which is unequivocal. Um, you can debate the all-time stuff with the Braves offense, by era, by the DH, all that stuff. But you cannot argue, by any rational metric, the Braves did not have the best offense in the league this year. They had the best offensive team in the league and no injuries in the playoffs. The injury stuff and the injury noise about, if you want to argue, I've, and I've heard this, and I think it's a, pre, a pretty reasonable thing to argue that um, nationally, especially, that the Braves weren't, quote-unquote, weren't the same team as they were for a lot of the season because of the pitching injuries. The fact that Free was probably not his 100% self. The fact that Morton didn't wasn't able to go in Game 3, etc. That's a reasonable argument. The offense had no such injuries. They had no such questions. Guys are hot and cold, of course, but like it wasn't like we knew anything that was glaring that happened there. And the reason the Braves lost this series, the number one reason, there were other reasons too, but the number one reason is that they did not hit. That's it. The Braves didn't hit, and I mean, it wasn't even particularly close to being enough. In the series, the Braves went 24 of 129. 
with 11 walks and 34 strikeouts. So more than three times as many strikeouts as walks. Their slash line as a team in the series was 186, 255, and 264 for a 519 OPS. For context, the Braves' slugging percentage this season, slugging only, was 501, an MLB record. They almost beat that as far as their OPS is concerned in this playoff series. They had four extra base hits in the entire series. There were three of 18 with runners in scoring position in the series. And like their stats galore on this, I won't list all of them, but 80% or more, I think it's like in the mid to high 80s percent of the time in baseball in the modern era, the team that hits more home runs in the game wins the game. The Phillies hit 11 home runs in the series, and the Braves hit three. So, and this is the, the Braves team that tied the record all time for home runs. The fewest runs the Braves scored in any four game span this season, any four game span, whether they were trying, whether they were beat up, any of that stuff, was nine. And they scored eight runs in this four game series. So, we can talk about all kinds of hypotheticals. We can talk about all kinds of, you know, mental things and approach things. And I do believe the Braves had a notably worse approach and maybe they got rattled or maybe they were pressing or however you want to describe that. I will let you all litigate that amongst yourselves in a lot of different ways. But I do know this, the Braves results, it wasn't like they got, yeah, there were some unlucky moments like there are with anything, but it wasn't like the, the stat cast numbers and the batted ball data was great. Like, no, they, they just didn't do anything well. And yes, hat tip to the Phillies pitchers because that's a good staff for sure. You know, Ranger Suarez pitched very well both times. Zach Wheeler is ironically the guy who lost in the game, but he was dominant for most of that start. Aaron Nola is quite good. He was rocky a little bit at one point, and then once that once the Braves um, you know gave up a lot on the in the third inning and kind of stabilized a little bit from there, their bullpen has been wildly upgraded in the last year. So hats up to the Phillies for sure. But the Braves' offensive numbers, like I can't I can't stop staring at them. That's how bad they are. It, it is jarringly ridiculous that the Braves did that in a small sample size. So that's the team stuff. On the individual side, I will always stress these are tiny samples. Come back to that later on. I get all that. There are some grim numbers in the individual stuff. Two guys on the roster had a WRC plus over 100. And if you don't know what that is, or if you don't care what that is, 100 is league average. Very easy. Austin Riley was the only guy on the team offensively that had a legitimately good series. He had two home runs, he had 353. And the irony is, he was the guy of the whole roster coming in, other than Michael Harris, who only played one, one playoff series before this. Riley was the only one of the regulars who actually had a pretty bad playoff history. It's kind of funny. He had a couple, he's had a, a couple of big moments in the past, but his numbers were way worse than they've been in the regular season. And ironically, he's the one guy who actually hit in this series. Um, Darno had one big swing in his, play, in his eight play appearances to push him up to league average or so. But that was it. It was Lily Riley in his own tier. Then it was Darno being league average basically on one swing. Everyone else with multiple plate appearances had a 620 OPS or worse. That translates to a 78 WRC plus, which is basically, I want to, I'm not going to even use a name. It's a, it's a bad hitter in a lot of ways. Ozzy was number three and he, he had four singles and two walks in the series. No power. He wasn't, he didn't kill them. Matt Olson had four hits in the series, so one hit in every game, but he was basically, he averaged one for four with a single every night, which isn't terrible, but it's not what you need from Matt Olson. Ronald Acuna, 2 of 14 with two walks. 
He hit the ball hard the whole series. He's kind of the only guy who had like pretty good batted ball data. But even then, poor results, and he's the MVP of the league, and you need more from him. Uh, while we're here, by the way, I, I do not care, even as a member of the media, about Ronald Acuna not speaking to the media. I will say, Ronnie should have talked. You got to talk. I get that. I'll say that now. Would I spend a column inch on that? No. Would I spend more than just what I said on that? I would not. I do believe he should have talked, but the fact that that became like a two-day story is pretty silly, and uh, running gets picked on a little bit sometimes in the local media. I don't really understand why, but it is what it is. I will say this. He did not have a great series, and he wasn't alone, as I'm, as I'm laying out right now. Most guys on the team did not have a great series, but when you're the MVP, more pressure. Same with Matt Olson, who's going to be a top-four MVP finisher. He wasn't great in the series. Uh, Marcelo Zuno was two for 13. He looked awful. I made a joke during the series about how the clock struck April for Marcel because infamously, Ozuna was arguably the worst player in baseball for about five weeks to begin the season and then also had been that bad for two years and then he became a top 10 hitter in the league the rest of the season. That happened. He, he was a top 10 hitter in baseball the last four months and then almost overnight, he just became the guy he was in April again. It's a small sample size. He looked, I mean, Ronnie doesn't, didn't look terrible at the plate. Ozuna looked terrible at the plate. Orlando Garcia, obviously beyond the noise of the national storyline that the whole thing became, which is just still crazy to me, he was bad at the plate. Uh, he looked like his old self in a bad way because Orlando, prior to the last year or so, was a very bad hitter in Milwaukee. And look, unlike Ozuna, there was some noise like it was coming with Arcia. Arcia had had a pretty shaky second half of the season. He had been tailing off. And I think my prior on, on Arcia being a, not a very good hitter, um, I still kind of hold on to that. So, like, it wasn't necessarily shocking what happened to Arcia, but he looked very bad at the plate in this series. Sean Murphy had two singles and seven plate appearances. It is what it is. Kevin Pillar was 0 for 5 with two walks. Rosario was 1, was one for 7 and looked terrible. Michael Harris was 0 for 13, got pinch hit 4 in a big moment, and now, through two years, has one hit in the playoffs. So, like, that's that's all the regulars. No one was good other than Riley. No one. Now, going back to last year, and a similar failure that we'll come back to in a second, only Olsen and Darno, if you combine the last two years, which, again, were two series because of last year being the same thing, only those two guys, Olsen and Darno, have above-average numbers combined the last two years. Acuna was good in last year's series. Bad this year. Riley was good this year. Bad last year. Harris, 1 of 27 in the last two years. And I mean, I love Michael Harris. I love Michael Harris. It's, and look, it's 27 plate appearances. It's a small sample size, but he is, that, that's that's going to be tough for him. I'm, I'm sure he's going to want to get that over and done with as soon as he can next October. But that's that's so bad that it sticks out to you in a lot of ways. Ozuna is slugging 0-95 in the last two playoff series. Arcia is hitting 217. So basically, that's the back half of the lineup. The four guys I just named. Harris, Ozuna, Eddie Rosario, who, by the way, is slugging 0-67 in the last two playoffs after the heroics. And, by the way, we don't never forget that. He was heroically good in 2021. So, all-time, never buy a drink again, Eddie Rosario. You and Jorge Soler forever. But, last two years, terrible. So, that's the back of the lineup. Harris, Ozuna, Rosario, and Arcia did absolutely nothing in this series. And, yes, the... Bigger pressure and the bigger stakes and the bigger spotlight should be on the top of the order. And especially your three clear batting stars, and that is Ronnie and Olsen and Riley, only one of which was good. And then your fourth guy is Ozzy, who is a tear down 
offensively from those guys, but is very, very good in his position. Your top four wasn't good either, so I'm not saying anything otherwise. But those four guys were not good in this series, at the very least. The bottom of your order was a black hole, and that showed up again at the end, which obviously was not just those guys at the end of the series. So by the time you even get to the playoffs, you had two very clear offensive holes in your lineup. Left field, again, and shortstop. Now, Rosario was pretty good this year on the whole. He had been cooling off. Same thing with Arcia. He had been cooling off. But then you get guys like Harris and Ozuna, both of whom completely disappear after being good for a long time. And it's just grim. I'll leave it there for now. It's just grim. Uh, the Braves also didn't pitch that well in the series. It should have been enough, but it wasn't particularly good. If you told me, though, that the Phillies scored 20 runs in four games and said, okay, how many games did the Braves win? I would have said at least two. Five runs a game is a lot. You don't want to give up five, run, five, five runs a game. But I would have said on average, if you give up only 20 runs in four games, you probably win two of them. But then if you also told me that they only scored 10 runs combined in game one, game two, and game four, I would say you have a chance to win all three of those, if not strongly likely to win two out of three, etc. And the Braves won one of those games. So, and I would argue, as I did on the show the other day, that part of the reason why Philly got to 10 runs in game three was that Snicker basically gave up on the game and punted. Um... People going at Special Strider for underperformance is pretty insane to me. Was he perfect? No. But he threw 12 and two-thirds innings and allowed four earned runs. Five, if you include the run that he got on the throwaway. That is enough to win those games. Was he perfect? No. But, like, he is so far down the list of, like, controversial negative figures in this series. Um, Freed was not good. Obviously, he had the injury question, which I talked about earlier. But I'm not gonna re- I won't relitigate the game three utter debacle, but pitching was not really the issue in this series. Was it good? No. But the bullpen actually was quite good, honestly. The starters were charged with 14 of the 20 runs, even when you remember the Tonkin elder debacle from Game 3. Three of the six runs of the bullpen were Smith-Shaver in utter mop-up duty. So for the rest of the series, Iglesias, Minter, Jimenez, Johnson, Hand, Yates, and Hernandez combined to allow three runs in 11 and a third against a really good offense. That's very good. Anyway, pitching, was it great? No, it wasn't. But it wasn't terrible. Uh, last thing, and I can't really believe that we're still doing this, but people are still throwing out the thing just lazily with no context about how the Braves should have added a starter at the deadline, as if there was some bevy of pitching available. And I, I'll acknowledge, if the Braves had traded for Jordan Montgomery, that would have been great. He was the only guy, and I've looked at this many times, the only guy that got traded at the deadline starting pitcher, proven track record, that has that was actually good, or even remotely good, after being traded with Jordan Montgomery. Would, would that have been nice? Sure, it would have been. But he was not, he's not the guy now, nor is, he, nor is he the guy then that anyone, fans, media, etc., was calling for them to trade for. That was not the guy. That was not the guy. Would he have been better than the Bryce Elder? Yes. But, like, there basically was not a person calling for that. All the other guys who were more popular names, Lance Lynn, Jack Flaherty, Michael Lorenzen, were terrible after the deadline. Terrible. All of them. And it's very appropriate to remember that Charlie Morton was supposed to line up and pitch game three. It's not his fault he got hurt, but like people are just like acting like this is the plan all along was Bryce Elder in game three. No, the plan was Charlie Morton in game three. Charlie Morton, who's a, who has playoff heroics. Charlie Morton has been established, who is much better than Bryce Elder. And yeah, would you have liked to have depth? Yeah. I, I was arguing back in the spring that I would have liked to see another starting pitcher. Like, I'm, I'm not oblivious to the fact that starting pitching depth is tough to find and you want to find it but like 
the whole like, oh, this is all this is all on Alex for not finding more p- pitching at the deadline. It's just, oh, it's absolutely insane. Okay, so <laughs> last thing on the uh, on the front of you know underperformance, um, I will say I-, I tweeted this at one point. Uh, I believe after the game was over, um, the Phillies were just flat out better than the Braves over the four game series, especially of course at the plate on the mound and in the dugout, which by that, I mean, managerially, um, they, they didn't, you know, I think they had a pretty bad series. Like, is that why they lost as much as I was enraged by game three? I would say no. The, the bigger reason, again, as I said before, was the offense. Um, could they have been more competitive in Game 3? Yes. Um, would I have done some, some, some things differently than Snicker did in this series? Yes. Uh, he was not good, I don't think, in this series, but he was not the ultimate difference, I don't believe, either. Uh, also, it's hard to get away from the parallels to last year. Of course, it's the same team. It's the same number of games. Um, some pretty crazy numbers, though. Last year, they were 23 of 128 at the plate in the series. This year, 24 of 129. So one more plate appearance and one more hit. Uh, they were within they were within five points of OBP from last year. Last year was two fifty five. No, sorry, not last year was two fifty. This year was two fifty five. So like the numbers are insane. The only gap was that last year they had more power and they were better with were in scoring position. But the results were the same, of course, in four game losses. It was even the same sequence. Last year was a pretty close home loss in game one at home. Same thing this year. Last year they won game two to even it up. Same thing this year. Blowout loss in Game 3 last year with controversial pitching management in both games. Check that box. And then losing Game 4 again. So, the numbers are... I mean, again, one more hat tip at the end to Philadelphia. Nick Castellanos becomes the first player in the history of baseball to have back-to-back multi-homer games in the playoffs. And he had never done that in the regular season, ever. Bryce Harper has a 1675 career OPS against the Braves in the playoffs the third best ever against an opponent behind Barry Bonds and Babe Ruth. Like Suarez was good. Nola was good. Wheeler was good till he wasn't. The bullpen was good for Philadelphia. Other than Trey Turner, they didn't really make defensive mistakes as a bad defensive team. Anyway, that's where I'll stop on the uh, on the recap portion. But fittingly for this podcast and for my approach and my thoughts on expanded playoffs, all that stuff, uh, I have to end talking about the fun or not so fun depending on how you look at it, of baseball. And I I love baseball. I will say that right now. I host a baseball podcast. I launched this podcast with Carlos Colazzo 400 plus episodes ago. I love baseball. But if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you will know that I do not love, and I've always hated, independent of the Braves, and I'm sure that people people nationally would not take that, or people in Philadelphia would not take that. I'm sure that um, most people are being accused of, you know, building that towards the Braves as the number one seed losing. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you will know that I have always, always, always hated the expanded playoffs. But there's a can't-predict-ball element to baseball always. I mean, I don't know how many times I've made this point on the podcast before. In series, you know, this year especially, you know, this year the Braves lost to the, to the A's in the series. Like, baseball is the most random of the major sports in North America. Uh, in a one-game sample, in a three-game sample, in a seven-game sample, etc., all that said, the most trusted proje- projection models from Fangraphs to Zips or Pocota, Sportsline, ESPN, whoever you want to go to, the Braves World Series odds were, were between 15% and 30% basically all year long once they had a great start. 
And I, I never saw, maybe, maybe it happened, I never saw one above 30% all year long. And that is very aggressive. For instance, before the NLDS started, Fangraphs gave the Braves a 27.3% chance to win the World Series. And that was considered really, really high on the Braves. They gave the Braves a 40.4% chance of winning the National League and a 61.1% chance to win the series against Philadelphia. That is, again, on the high side. But even if you take, take that as gospel, that means 39% of the time you lose in the first round to Philadelphia, despite being 14 games better than the, than the Phillies over a large sample size. You lose the series, independent of, any, of anything else. That's context-free. 39% of the time you lose. 14 is better than that team this year. No other team. By the way, that was the highest percentage, even with Philadelphia winning. It would have, it would have been higher with Miami. I will grant that. But uh, it's not like anybody else had a huge... So the Dodgers-Diamondback series is the one that was perceived as maybe even a bigger mismatch than Braves-Phillies because the Phillies are legitimately good in Arizona this year. Credit to them for getting to the NLCS. They were not a good team this year. They were out, they were outscored for the season. No other team other than the Braves, according to Fangraphs and their model, had more than a 58 58.6% chance to win the NLDS or the ALDS. That's insane. Think about that. The Dodgers had a 10-plus game gap between themselves and the Diamondbacks in the same division, and they were given a 58.6% chance to win the series. Baseball is more random than other sports. That's just the raw math. The notion of the best team in baseball is always supposed to cruise in this format especially. But any format. Especially this format, though. It's just it's just wrong. Like, yes, would it be better if the Braves had won the series? Yes, it would have been. Uh, would it have been less narrative drivel had they lost in different fashion? Would it have been better if they lost in five? I don't know. Debate, debate that all you want to. But the Braves weren't supposed to even make the World Series. I mean, as crazy as this sounds, as the number one seed... The number one seed and the best human baseball this year, they were projected by systems people trust and people think are smart systems to more often than not, not make the World Series. Much less win it. They were supposed to make the World Series 40.4% of the time, according to Fangraphs. I don't know what to say. Um, a lot of talk nationally, especially in Philadelphia and New York, you know, they're picking at Braves fans and Braves observers for whining about the format. I'm not going to go down that road too, too much. Uh, I thought Strider gave some good comments about this. Like, I, I don't think it's cool to blame the format now. I think the layoff stuff, for one, for one thing, I don't care about the layoff. There's stuff on both sides of that. I'm not at all convinced that it was the, that it was the issue. Um, if you want to stand on that hill, I don't blame you. But once, you know, once you're playing again, like maybe, maybe game one, I could sort of see that argument more. I, I just, for me, this is just me talking, the layoff... You know, it's not great probably for a team like this, but you also get a buy. Should I, do I think that the incentives should be stronger for teams that win the divisions and stronger for teams that especially have the number one seed or number two seed? I do, but the layoff, eh, I, I don't really mind. Um, one more time, I do not think anything of the Arcia Harper stuff mattered even a little bit in this series. Bryce Harper were, was going to hit those two hanging sliders to the moon independently of what anything that was said. By Orlando Garcia. Uh, that's where I am on that. The issue was performance-based. They were not good enough in the four games that mattered this season. Also, there's a narrative out there still against all data 
that the Braves didn't perform or try in September. It's just not really true. They had one bad series against Miami in September, but they won 70% of their games after that. 70% of their games. They were playing a bunch of records all the way to the end. A lot of guys started on game, game 162. Yeah, like, it's not the same mindset when you're at 14 games. I will certainly grant that. But, like, it wasn't like they went 8-22 and 22 in September. That didn't happen. Plus, even if they did, our friend Stephen Tolbert on this same podcast network has done the research on this, and many have, the results in September don't actually translate to mattering in the playoffs. Last year's example of the Phillies is a perfect one. Last year's Phillies, who beat the Braves and made the World Series, were terrible in September. Terrible. Like, it doesn't actually matter. That doesn't matter. Um, but everyone, and I get this, everyone grasps for narrative when things don't break their way, which I totally understand. And I'm not trying to do that at all on this podcast. But to wrap it up in one tidy bow, if you're a longtime listener, you will know, again, said this once before, I'll say it again, I disdain the expanded playoffs. I've said that for years and years, independent of the Brave stuff, it's magnified here. I will certainly grant that. If you're a new listener, it probably sounds like I'm wanting, I get on it. But... When the Braves are the best team in the baseball, and look, insert team here. Let's talk about the Dodgers for a second. Whichever team it was, Orioles, good example. If you're the number one seed or the best team in baseball and you win 104 games and the grand reward for that is a best of five series against a division rival and the only advantage to that is an extra home game in an era where home field advantage is worth 54%, that doesn't make any sense. Now, if you're a casual observer or if you're a neutral observer and you just want chaos, I do get that. And look, like it, it does bring chaos. But and this year, I will I will go the other way real quickly here is that um this is an all-time bad ALCS and LCS feel in terms of like team quality. The Astros and the Phillies are pretty good. I, I think those those teams are pretty good. They didn't win that many games though. And the Diamondbacks are not particularly good. Um it, it is what it is. And the Rangers, the Rangers, I will say, they didn't win a lot of games at the end, but they had a good run differential and all that stuff. But it does kind of stand out a little bit more this year because all the best teams on paper lost. And people, some people love that, and that's fine. Um, my issue is not even just with the results. Like, I think the short sample results this year don't really matter that much. But baseball is the ultimate large sample size sport, and its leadership from Rob Manfred to the owners, they've just repeatedly chosen to take the money over attempting to make the best team win. And that's fine. And honestly... I've lost that battle a long time ago, and I we acknowledge that. How many times on this podcast do we acknowledge that like the best team doesn't usually win the World Series? That's been common knowledge. It was always it was kind of always that way. It's just gotten more and more in that direction as the playoffs have expanded, which makes sense if you do the math on that. More chances to lose, smaller sample sizes mean more variance, and they want that, and that's fine. It's more money for them, but it is virtually a crapshoot when you get in the playoffs. Is it, better to be, is it better to be a better team than your opponent? Yes, it is. But the variance and the madness of all that is just what it is. Again, this has been a topic long before the Braves were winning 100 games per season the last two years on this podcast. But even in baseball, the best team in the league, the Braves this year, whoever you want to choose, against the A's or the Royals is not a huge favorite um, in a best of three or best of five series. It, they're just not. There was, a study done, there was a study done actually recently that Scott pointed to a couple weeks ago on this podcast that I brought up before. Baseball teams went to play a best of 75 series to feel as confident about the better team actually winning as an NBA series does in a best of seven. One more time. Best of 75 is the appropriate sample to compare to best of seven in the NBA. It's a random sport. 
and it shows itself really on the small edges over large sample sizes. And a five-game series, even a seven-game series, which is why I'm not making the whole bargain. Like, you know, the Braves could have lost seven-game series, they feel like too. It is what it is. But it doesn't tell you that much. It's, it's a tiny sample size. It is what it is. The Phillies are the first team in the history of baseball to defeat the same opponent in, bo- in multiple postseasons where they d- had at least a 10-win gap in the other direction. And they're the first team to do that ever in any seasons, and they did it back-to-back years. 14-win gap both times. The seventh largest win differential upset in a, in a, in a series in baseball history, and, it, and they did it twice in a row. The first time in the history of baseball, excluding shortened seasons, that all four teams in the in the LCS have, have 90 wins or fewer. So like it's just random, and I get it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I understand. I will raise my hand, but none of this makes it easier on the Braves. The Braves were the best team in baseball this year over 162 games. Objectively speaking, I believe that. They had the best record. That's run differential. They were dominant in every way. They were 14 games better than the Phillies. They were 150 runs better than the Phillies. That's almost a run per game better than the Phillies this year. The Phillies were much better in the last four games. That's all that matters. That's baseball. That's the sport that we have all signed up for and cover and root for, etc. So yeah, in the end, it's utterly maddening. The Braves were just, the Braves were just not good enough, particularly on offense. They got outpitched. By a little bit, they got outmanaged by a lot. We'll talk about f- future stuff more, all which are long, I'm sure. What I don't believe is that the Braves have to like go out and like change their whole roster and make wholesale changes or whatever, because inherently I think underperformance was much more at the heart of things, and it's much more random than people will think it was, and I'm okay with that being a disagreement. I, I, people that I know that are smart in my life don't believe that. They think that it's like more, they, they think it's less random than I do, and that's fine. That's something we can talk about till the end of time. But I also know, again, I understand not believing that. I think reacting emotionally to going two two and six in the last eight, eight playoff games, losing twice as favorites with similar teams, I, I get it. Um, it. And again, I said it before, but it, it seems like the Braves' approach on offense, the approach, not, not just the results, the approach was worse. They seemed rattled. They were managed poorly, in my opinion, in this series. That can all, that can all be corrected, but it, it all did happen. So... On that topic, real quickly before we get out of here, I, I did mention that I'm not, not going to talk, talk a ton about what was said after by extra interviews and Alex and future stuff on this particular show. But Anthopolis did say on Friday that Snickers is going to be back next year, and basically they didn't even talk about anything else. So it seems like he is totally safe, which is not a surprise to anyone, I don't think, but maybe it is. Um, I think Snick could maybe retire potentially, but that's the only way he's not going to be back. And look, as much as I really, really, really did not like some stuff in the series, Snicker has been a a really good manager over multiple seasons. Is he not my favorite in the playoffs? Tactically, yes. He's beloved by players, and you can't really argue with six consecutive division titles because on the flip side of everything I've argued before, the big thing is getting into the dance in the in baseball. Like, if I'm going to believe, and I do, that there's a lot of randomness there, the thing that you have to do is get there. And the Braves have been really good every year the last six years. And Snit is a uh, is not like entirely responsible for that by any means. I think it's more about the talent, but I think that Snit is a good, steady hand, and I'm not surprised at all that he's not going to be fired. Plus, I, I don't think he should be. That's that's my opinion. So the brand of this podcast, as I sign off here, from the beginning, is to be very level-headed. And I know you guys heard the frustration from Scott and I after Game 3, because mostly, at least for me, it was because it was process failure. Not performance failure, process failure. That's what drives me the most crazy. 
I know you heard the exasperation from Sean and Steven and again, shots to those guys after game four. But in the end, the Braves were really bad for four games this week and eight games over the last two years. I have really, I have a lot of trouble and we'll all, we'll all wrestle with this for a long time, con- sort of contrasting that and comparing it to the 320 plus games the rest, of those, the rest of those seasons. But to each their own on that, really, I promise you that's okay. We can all just agree to disagree and come together at some other time. But regardless, this is all going to create a lot of takes. They've already been flying the last couple days. I'm recording this podcast Saturday night. It's going to keep getting worse, I'm sure, in the offseason. And the frustration there is totally understandable. From fans, from the team, players, management, manager, Alex, all that stuff. Five plus months of this, it's going to be frustrating. And the and unfortunate part about all of this with the Braves is that when you do this again, nothing is going to matter that much in the regular season. Like, this was one of the all-time awesome regular seasons to watch. The Braves were so fun, and they won a lot of games, and they bashed all year long in the best possible way. But when this happens two years in a row, next year, there's going to be a part of the fan base, and it's going to be a growing part every year if this keeps happening, that's going to come in and say, nothing matters to October. And I, I kind of get it. I'm not saying that's how I feel, but I always understand that in this moment. So, I'm going to sign off now. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I sincerely appreciate everyone who has listened at any point, especially those who check out the show all the time. You are very much appreciated. We have a lot more to come all winter long, from roster stuff, to the news, to the hot stove, projections, reviews, what, what they have to improve on, where the spots are, you know, financials, all that stuff, contract stuff, and minor league stuff, and all that stuff. It's all coming and more and more on this podcast. Some shows sign off in the winter or do like a show a month. We don't do that. Like, honestly, we're not going to be every single day, but we're going to be, we are here all winter long. Um, lots of Sean, lots of me and Scott and Steven and Chris, and we're going to be here all the way through. Again, I didn't even touch on what Alex said for the most part other than Snit. And there's some newsy stuff out there as well and comments, etc. We'll have all of that at batterypower.com and more on the podcast network from Sean on the Daily Hammer in the coming days. So basically, I'm encouraging you now, please subscribe to the show. If you are a new listener or you're just finding this podcast somewhere else or on batterypower.com, smash the subscribe button anywhere you get your podcasts. Places like Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, five-star ratings and reviews, all appreciate it. We'll have much, much more the rest of this month in November and December and January and then it's hot stove, all that stuff, it's all coming. And one more time, I promise you this, we very much value all of your contributions as a listener to the podcast. I, as the person who launch the podcast and still kind of manage the podcast behind the scenes. I want to thank one more time Scott Coleman, Sean Coleman, Stephen Tolbert, and Fearless Leader Chris Willis for all their work this year. Thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast. We'll see you all next time.